0: Revelation chapter 4 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 5 through the end of the chapter is the goal anyway, verses 5 through 11. This morning the title of the message is, To God Be the Glory, as we are making our way through this wonderful book of Revelation and investigating these incredible scenes we, in our scripture reading this morning, we read Ezekiel chapter 1 because it is uh, what we would call a parallel passage, Ezekiel there talking about very similar things that uh, the Apostle John saw when he was taken up to heaven that we looked at last week in the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, As we are making our way through this wonderful book, verse by verse, we have made it to the last section of the book. Praise the Lord for that. We can uh, kind of rest on our laurels there. Unfortunately, the the last part of the book is uh, at the beginning of a very long section. It's not unfortunate. We're going to learn a lot of uh, a lot of wonderful things about the Lord as we study primarily His plan for the future. That's what the book of Revelation is, uh, in large part. About we have seen the things which uh, John saw in the beginning, in his vision on the island of Patmos, he saw the risen Christ, primarily in chapter one. We have seen the things which are, which were messages to the seven churches, very critical messages to these churches. They are, of course, are very applicable to us. Today, living in the church age, we saw so many uh, encouraging messages, a great assurance of salvation for these people in spite of sin that they had in their lives. They were they're given many, many promises about their future with the Lord, which should be a great encouragement to us. But now in chapter 4, we're moving on to the things which will take place after these things. And that's the phrase that begins this section right there in chapter four and verse one. After these things, I looked and and saw. And John sees this incredible scene in heaven. We saw last time that in fact he was actually. I personally believe that he was taken to heaven to to see these things that uh, that we began to discuss last week that go all the way through the end of, of chapter 5. We we looked at the chronology last time. We saw how that's, that's what the book of Revelation is really about. Chronologically, things that will happen in the future. We view this book in a futuristic manner. We are uh, futurists at Flushing Bible Church, and that's just a term that has been applied to people who see the book of Revelation describing uh, future events rather than uh, some people known as preterists. They see the book of Revelation as being describing the past, and idealists see it as just describing the world. So we can kind of keep those uh, three viewpoints in mind futurists, future, obviously, preterists, past idealist, it's just describing the world generally. But it's pretty clear uh, we'll see today when we investigate these events, well we won't see that today, but as we make our way through Revelation it will become very clear that these events have not taken place in the past. They're not taking place now. Therefore, they must take place in the future. That's pretty much the entire point of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is coming again. How is that going to happen? The book of Revelation describes that. So last time, next, we saw the call. John being called up to heaven in an, in an event that is very reminiscent of the future rapture of the church. We saw that, this, that there is a call like the sound of a trumpet. He was immediately taken up to heaven. And there he sees this incredible scene, very similar to what Paul describes uh, an event that took place in his life, 1 Corinthians chapter twelve and he's called up to heaven for the very express purpose of seeing the future things that are going to take place in the future and then next we saw this uh group of twenty four elders who were who we came to the conclusion that they're essentially representing the church. They had, they were uh, c- seated on thrones, or they had thrones around uh, where the Lord is, indicating that they are going to reign. They were given crowns, not crowns of ruling, but we saw last time that those were really crowns of of rewards. And because of some of these things, we came to the conclusion that that these 24 elders are representative of the church and interestingly to notice that they are there in heaven before the events of chapter six and subsequent before the events of the tribulation. And this is our chart that we've, uh, we've see this chart all the time. Basic timeline uh, creation would be somewhere over here in the beginning Uh Old Testament period, the law, the nation of Israel, and all of these subsequent events that were basically uh, part of God's plan to bring the Savior into the world, the seed of the woman. How does that happen? How does God fulfill his promise that he made to uh, Satan, essentially, that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head? How does that happen? Well, the Old Testament lays out how Jesus Christ came into the world. He died on the cross not just for the sins of the Jews, not just for the sins of the Gentiles, but for the sins of the entire world. Every single person had their sins paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he died and was buried and rose again on the third day According to the Scriptures, and that's what we are proclaiming to the world right now in the church age. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the chief, and so are you. We're pretty much all equally uh, sinful before God, and He died for each and every one of us. And salvation is made available to us because He rose again and we can uh, uh completely paying the penalty of sin so that it is avail so salvation is available to us by way of faith we don't have to work for it all the work was done by Jesus Christ on his cross that's why when the bible talks about these overcomers we don't have to wonder whether we're an overcomer or not Jesus Christ is the one who overcame for us we trust in what he did that makes us overcomers because we are we are placed into Christ when we trust in him and that's what the church age is all about us proclaiming that message to the world one day that's going to end this church age is going to end when we are called to heaven and meet the lord in the air when he comes again in an event that's very very similar to what john experienced here in chapter the beginning of chapter four. And then this tribute sometime subsequent to that, this tribulation period that we're going to find in Revelation chapters six through nineteen is going to take place over a seven-year period, according to Daniel 9:27. And then the Lord is going to descend bodily to the earth, touch down uh, on the Mount of Olives, physically walking on this earth again to rule and reign over a kingdom of his making, not our making, for 1,000 years. And then the eternal state will begin that's covered in Revelation 21 through 22. So we're going to see a chart. Maybe I need to make, make my own chart out of this. I already I have, We have one, but it just doesn't look as good as that. Maybe we'll make one that's better than that. Uh, in the future. So we're going to cover this. By the time we get to Revelation 22, hopefully this when you close your eyes, you'll see this chart. It'll be Im- implanted in your brain because that's, uh, that's very important for us to understand where we are in God's timeline, to understand what our, our purpose is as the church, really. I mean, if you're... Uh, I, If you're in any kind of uh, an operation that has some sort of a plan, you have to know what the end goal is. You've got to know where you are and what you're supposed to be doing to get to the end goal. That's very important for us to understand. If we think we're here, boy, you know that could we're in the tribulation. That well, well, that's not right. We're not in the tribulation. We're back here before the tribulation begins. If we think we're in this period. Oh, we've got we've got some issues if we think we're trying to build this you know, it's just it's you're not doing the thing that God wants you to do. We're back here in the church age carrying out those good deeds that he performed that he created beforehand for us to walk in, making disciples, giving people the gospel and then discipling them, teaching them how to how to Uh, walk by faith in the Lord. So today, the title of our message again is To God Be the Glory. We're going to see these angelic beings praising God. First, we're going to see some uh, separation that God is separate from His creation. Then we're going to see the seraphim, uh, another word for angels, and then scenes of worship. To conclude, we begin with the separation notice revelation chapter 5 or chapter 4 and beginning in verse 5 where it says out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of god and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal How are we going to interpret all of this information that we're about to dive into? We are very much getting into the section of the book of Revelation where John is going to begin to describe things with figurative language. If you were listening to the uh, scripture reading this morning in Ezekiel chapter 1, would left reading this and it's... Clearly, Ezekiel is doing his best to describe something that is nearly indescribable. And that, and John is experiencing the same thing here. So there is, in this description of heaven, and essentially, uh, spoiler, spoiler alert, what is God's throne, where God himself dwells? Of course, this is a scene that is, that is unimaginable. And he's doing his very best to describe uh, what he is seeing here. So he uses a lot of figurative language. And our goal as Bible students should be to try to discern what he's trying to communicate to us. And so there is a way that we can do that. And that's what is known as the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. And it's important for us to use that consistently throughout the Bible. Uh, Literal. It doesn't mean that everything that we read on the page, we just look at in what's quote-unquote a wooden, literal Way that oh that well that's that's what it says on the page. We have to pay attention to the language because John has to use a figurative language. He uses figures of speech throughout this. We're going to see the, the the word like and as a lot in these in these sections. Verse six says, "And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass." That doesn't mean that it was. A sea of glass. It's something like a sea of glass or similar to a sea of glass. It is something that is that John has never seen before. In fact, very few people have ever seen before. And so he's using language to describe this uh, so that we can somewhat get a picture of what John saw. That's still a literal. We're still... Try, we're still discerning the literal meaning, even though we're applying the figure of speech. We're trying to understand the figure of speech that John is using there. So we we want literal, in essence, means getting to what the the author is trying to communicate. When we when that's what we mean when we say that we use a literal method. We're trying to literally understand what the author is communicating. And uh, grammatical, that, that simply means that we have to understand the grammar of the sentences. God in His, in his sovereignty and His omniscience has determined that the best way for humans to know the most about Him is through written communication. So that's what we have to understand. We have to understand the rules of grammar many times that plays a very important role in understanding what the author is trying to communicate. So sometimes we have to get into tenses of verbs and parts of speech and all of these these kinds of wonderful uh, things. And we also have to know the historical background. Did John write this uh, in AD 45 or did he write this in AD 95? That's important because it, it uh, sort of lays the foundation. We saw in our study before we dove into the text of Revelation, we saw that John, in fact, did write this in A.D. 95, 96, somewhere in that range, which means it's not describing what happened in A.D. 70, which preterous people believe that the book of Revelation is just simply describing the past when God destroyed the the temple in Jerusalem uh, and you might say, but Jesus didn't come again and stand on the Mount of Olives. oh well, he came in the clouds and you just didn't see him. Okay, that's not using a literal grammatical historical interpretation the book of Revelation and in many other places say Jesus is coming again to this earth you and you may say but there wasn't a 1000-year kingdom on the earth and they would retort with well it's not it's not really a 1000 years it's not really a, a literal kingdom on the earth and you would turn in your bible to revelation 20 and say but it says a thousand years six times well okay (laughs) i'm not really sure how they how they respond to that other than saying that it well you you're just being too literal that again back to literal grammatical historical interpretation so that's what we're going to do when we go through these incredible scenes, incredible events that we're going to see. We don't want to conjure up things in our own imagination. We want to do our best to understand what John is, and the Holy Spirit is trying to uh, communicate to us in this. And and whenever we can, go to other places in Scripture. If the book of Revelation doesn't tell us. We'll get a great example of it interpreting itself, but when it doesn't interpret it, go to other places in Scripture and try to come up with what is being communicated. And one of the things that was communicated here by John is these uh, incredible sounds that are coming from the throne. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder this would seem that it is uh, something that's very similar to what Ezekiel saw. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, And I, as I looked, keep in mind that Ezekiel is on the earth when he's seeing this vision. He specifically says he's in Babylon, uh, physically in Babylon, on the earth, and he sees this coming at him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind, was coming from the north a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it and in the midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire John on the other hand is in heaven and he sees or he, and hears he sees these flashes of lightning and hears sounds and peals of thunder which if you've ever been outside before a thunderstorm comes or, or maybe even as it's developing right over you, you, you have seen something very similar to this, uh, what John is describing. And so what, it, what is being communicated is that this is like a warning. There's a storm coming. Judgment is coming. And we know that this is God that that what John is seeing, and it is a warning of the power of God. Just like the just like the uh, thunder and lightning flashes are are warnings of an impending storm. Uh, I have this fancy watch and a phone that's connected to, and every time there's a storm, I start getting alerts: warning, there's a storm coming. Ah, no kidding! I hear the I hear the thunder and see the lightning. Uh, This is kind of uh, John's uh, Apple Watch going off on his wrist. Warning, there's judgment coming. The power of God is is here, and we're about to see God's judgment poured out on the world. We see the uh, very similar signs of warning before uh, and during the uh, seal judgments. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 5, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and th- threw it to the earth. And there were follow- and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake at the seventh seal. Uh, and the trumpet judgments. Revelation 11 and verse 19 at the seventh trumpet says, Uh, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and great hailstorm. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 18 at the seventh bowl. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. So over and over we see that this, these sounds of thunder and flashes of lightning and all of this is impending doom, essentially. And John is getting a, a preview of it right here in the very beginning of his vision of uh, the very throne room of God. Notice also in verse 5 that it says uh, next, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation there interpreting itself for us. Uh, Again, John is describing here specifically the seven spirits of God. If you'll remember back to chapter 1, we came to the conclusion that by the seven spirits of God, essentially that it means the Spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit that, that he is being allowed to see, essentially. And it is in the form of seven lamps of fire burning before the throne he specifically says which are the seven spirits of god same phraseology as chapter one and so he's seeing something that cannot be seen the holy spirit is a spirit it can't be seen he can't be seen and so he's taking on a form so that john can see him notice that phrase there the seven lamps of fire burning we have we've Uh, seen a a phrase that at least in English was very similar back in chapter 1 with Jesus Christ walking among the seven golden lampstands, if you'll remember. That was another place where the Bible interpreted itself for us or Revelation interpreted itself for us in that the seven golden lampstands were the seven churches. Well, here... This term for lamp is a different word, actually, than a lampstand. It's really more of a torch. And if you think back to uh, the American Revolution days and the Boston Tea Party and these kinds of uh, these kinds of events, they didn't carry the the patriots didn't carry golden lampstands with them when they were going to stick it to the king they carry torches and pitchforks and these kinds of things. Again, torches are a sign of judgment, very similar to the sounds of thunder and the flashes of lightning. And and again, this is something that is similar to what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4. He saw the storm approaching and then he says in the in Ezekiel 1:4, in the midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Isaiah himself, he also saw, had a vision of God in his throne room. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, he too mentions, uh, he mentions burning coals, but mentions this kind of fire that is very. representative, or better to be said, that the Holy Spirit is in the form of this fire so that we can see him. If you were here for Sunday school, there, I guess you didn't talk about it. It was one of our questions, actually. One of the trivia questions said something about uh, what form did God take for the people to be able to see him in the day. The Israelites, while he was a, a cloud during the day and he was a pillar of fire, at night, so that the people could see him. That is a very uh, good picture of the Holy Spirit taking a form so that we can see him. Isaiah sees fire. Ezekiel sees this kind of fire. And so does John. Three people who were there to see, have this vision of heaven. Isaiah chapter 6. In verse 6, he says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, there wasn't some sort of magical power in that burning coal that touched his lips. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit this is something that the Holy Spirit does in our lives as believers Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come into the world before he went to the cross in the upper room John 16 and verse 8 Jesus promised that when he went returned to heaven he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin righteousness and judgment, and that's what he did for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit carried out his ministry of convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment to the point that you trusted in him. And when you trust in him, he regenerates us, according to Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Paul says to Titus, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Isaiah there is having a physical representation of the Holy Spirit forgiving him of his sins there in Isaiah 6 when he is having this vision of the Lord. And and uh, John is seeing the same kind of thing here with these seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Uh, same Same Holy Spirit who is forgiving Isaiah is here pictured in these torches a sign of judgment. Same spirit, different role being portrayed in both of these these books. And it's the same Holy Spirit who empowers believers in the church age. Uh, it's the same Holy Spirit who's going to judge unbelievers during the tribulation. Same God, different Rolls. And then next in verse 6, John sees this uh, sea of glass. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. This is an indication that God is separate. If you picture, if you can somehow picture this in your mind, John standing on the edge. This large sea of glass, I just had the opportunity to fly over the sea just yesterday, the Gulf of Mexico, and you look out, and wow, that's big. And you look on a, on a, on a map, and the Gulf of Mexico is just kind of small. It's just this little thing right there. Well, when you're there, it's, it's pretty massive. <laughs> and that's what John is seeing here, this sea of glass. He's on the edge, and then he can see perhaps the throne in the middle Of this sea of glass, God is separate from His creation. Unlike uh, pantheists and basically every Eastern religion that there is, see God in everything. Oh, God's in the in the piano. He's in the grass. He's in the clouds. The birds. The mice. The trees. He's just everywhere. Well, He created everything, but He is separate from His creation. He's not in. The birds. He lives in believers through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's not in the piano and mice and all of these things. He created them. He created all that we see and even things that we don't see, but he is separate from it. That, the theological term for that is the creator-creature distinction. Something for us to, to always remember that God is separate from us. And essentially, what John is seeing is the Holy of Holies. The, the Holy of Holies that was in the temple in Jerusalem uh, what, when they had created the temple was one thing. What it's going to be in the future when they create another temple. That, that is just is a mere shadow of what John is seeing here. He is actually seeing... The real thing, God, in the holy of holies, separate from His creation. Next, notice the seraphim. We're going to see these living creatures, these angelic beings. Uh, just to give you the, give you the answer of what these things are before we before we get there. Notice the second part of of verse six. He says, "In the center." And around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was a flying eagle. These are four living creatures, full of I, seraphim just being a a word that starts with s, it's a Hebrew it's a Hebrew word that is uh a Hebrew word used to describe angels in the old testament. Sometimes you will see cherubim uh or cherubs and seraphim uh two different words that essentially are describing angelic beings. And that's what John is uh I believe seeing here now in the King James version it will instead of four living creatures it will use the word beasts to describe them four living beasts i think it says and that's not the best uh interpretation of that word particularly for the book of revelation we are going to see beasts later and they are not these Creatures. That is the beasts of Revelation 13, different word, therion is the term for beast that we see that's used to describe the false prophet and the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. This is the Greek term zooon, uh, where we would get the, the word zoo or zoology, study of living things. That's what uh, these are. They are living Creatures, or some translations will call them living beings, which is also a good, uh, a good translation of this term zoon. Uh, now, when we read Ezekiel chapter one, he too described these beings, but it was a little bit different than what uh, than what we see. John describing here in Revelation chapter 4. Ezekiel also describes a, a similar scene in Ezekiel chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, again, he's seeing this, this uh, vision of God's throne, essentially, something like a sapphire stone, in appearance resembling a throne, Appeared above them, and he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim, and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. So there are, it's obvious that these angels who are there that John is seeing are created. To be in the very presence of God—that's what he's describing there in Ezekiel 10. This is the same idea that John is describing here. It's important to notice that there are differences. That doesn't mean that there are contradictions. Oh, Ezekiel is more uh, is is a better eyewitness account than John, or John's better than Ezekiel. It's important to realize that Ezekiel is seeing this throne on heaven. So he's getting a picture of these, these wheels and the, its ability to move and this kind of thing. John is literally in heaven, seeing God's throne room in heaven. So it's two eyewitnesses of the same thing. However, the throne and the area is, are, is in two different places so there are similarities there are uh, similarities which i believe are overwhelming to to conclude that the same thing is being described here just in from different perspectives in different situations if you will notice that they are full of eyes he says that's something that ezekiel describes to these beings that are literally covered in eyes indicating that they are that they see not everything, but they've got a very good understanding of things that are going on around them. Angels, like everything that is in this world uh, outside of God, are created things. Angels are created things. They're not gods, even though they can see, have these eyes all around them to see things They don't see everything, they're not omniscient, they're not omnipotent or all-powerful like God is, although we're going to see that they do have a lot of power, but what they see, how they see, the power that they exert, it all comes from God. They are created for Him, by Him, and for Him, and His creation reflects His glory, and so uh, he has made these angels, given them the ability to carry out his bidding perfectly. They are intelligent beings serving God. Uh, Ezekiel 10.12, Ezekiel describes these same four living beings as having their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around the wheels belonging to all four of them. Uh, John just simply describes them as being full of eyes in front and behind, created for God's purpose, just like uh, Genesis 3.24, the angel that guards the way to the tree of life, created specifically for the purpose of carrying out God's mission. John describes the four living creatures as uh, each one of them having its own face. Ezekiel, the way that he saw it, there were four beings. They each had the four faces. So uh, just, again, a a different perspective, but seeing the same thing. Verse 7 of Revelation 4, the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle again using that uh figure of speech a simile like or as describing this so that we can understand what is what is being communicated and and what primarily is being Communicated is the the completeness of God's creation, uh, the fact that He's created these beings uh, to perfectly be able to carry out their their purpose, and it's fairly obvious that the lion, the lion, the face of a lion, very uh, there's there are a lot of different commentators will come up with different uh, ideas of what this is representative of but uh i think that the fact that the lion is kind of the the known as the king of the jungle the the most powerful uh most threatening if you will animal that that lives in the wild kind of representative of god also he he is the king the king of his Creation. A, a calf might be better to see it as an ox. That's the way that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, every time we see this same word for calf that we have here in, in Revelation, it's actually translated as ox. An ox is simply a uh, castrated male calf that's allowed to grow. And and they are used and are the strongest domesticated animal. They can do the work for you on your on your farm. representative of who God is being omnipotent and uh Jesus Christ himself being a servant for for us. We see the face of a man, man being the uh at least of the visible creation, the most intelligent of the beings. We can use our reason. We can communicate with speech with one another and writing and all of these different uh, forms indicating the intelligence or omniscience of God. And then we also see this uh, one that is like a flying eagle, indicating uh, speed and mobility in these kinds of These kinds of things. All of this to, in order to describe these beings, these created beings, God expressing himself in his creation. Not that these things are gods that are created, they are angelic beings, but they reflect God and his attributes. He is king, he is omnipotent, he is omniscient he is omnipresent he can go wherever he wants he is wherever he wants to be he's everywhere like the eagle has the ability to to uh, get from place to place very quickly so his creation very much shows his attributes and that's what these angels are doing and and there's a lot. Of, you read the various commentaries on this section of Revelation, and and a lot of them will refer to the Gospels, and uh, it's kind of it's interesting to see the the sort of the themes of the different Gospels and how they uh, portray Jesus Christ. But su- I was surprised at how there isn't a lot of uh, agreement among scholars on which. Gospel is representative of which of these four beings? Uh, I had always read, you know, oh, Matthew is describing Jesus as the king. That's the lion, of course. Uh, Mark is describing Jesus as a servant. That's the calf or the ox. Luke, if you remember our study of Luke, he was the son of man. Uh, Luke very much emphasized God's, uh, Jesus' humanity, and John uh, describing him as the son of God, this one who is uh, sometimes likened to the eagle, but commentators don't agree. Modern scholarship seems to go with what I've just described to you. Uh, not something to get hung up on. Not something to uh, really really worry too much about. God is, is demonstrating his character, his Uh, attributes in these angelic beings that are created for a very specific purpose to uh, be around Him. So when we take in this whole scene, we see uh, that God is there. He's on His throne. Uh, There seems to be a storm around Him indicating impending judgment. He's separate from His creation. He's protected by these four Incredible, indescribable uh, angels. He's separate from us. He's different from us. He's perfect, holy, righteous. And in fact, holy, that's what separateness means. Uh, Or that's what holiness means, that he is separate from us. And his holiness and his righteousness demand That we worship Him. And that is exactly what we see next in verses 8-11 through in these scenes of worship. Notice verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes, around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. created. So these four living creatures, again, he, he emphasizes uh, that, that these four creatures are there. And notice that they have six wings. And that, in fact, is exactly what Isaiah describes. Also, Isaiah 6, 2, the seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. The two he covered, with two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Ezekiel describes four wings. Perhaps he didn't see the other uh, two wings uh, because they weren't flying, so he didn't notice them. I, I don't want to make excuses for Ezekiel or for the Bible. That's just a uh, a very probable explanation for why Ezekiel says four, Isaiah and John both uh, see, six. But these six wings, Isaiah describing how they they cover their face, uh, indicating that they are honoring God. They are in awe, They are in God's presence, and they are in awe of Him. They're not even willing to to look at Him. They cover their feet, indicating uh, humility. They are. They're not. Uh, they're not haughty. Before God, and with two wings, they're ready to fly. They are ready to uh, answer God's call and do what He wants them to do. And again, He describes them as being full of eyes around and within. He emphasizes that again in verse eight, just like uh, Ezekiel does in chapter one, verses fifteen through. Twenty-one. Notice the angels' response to God. Their response is one of worship. It says that day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They are recognizing, worship is just simply recognizing God for who he is. Uh, John chapter 4, Jesus had a meeting with uh, commonly known as the woman at the well. And he said this to her in John chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain uh, as the where the Samaritans worship the Lord, nor in Jerusalem where the Jews worship the Lord, Will you worship the Father? Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And worship. And what jesus is getting at there we we must be in the spirit that doesn't mean that we uh have to come to church and have goosebumps and we have to have some kind of physical feeling in order to be worshiping the lord to be in the spirit means essentially to have the spirit in you you have to be a christian in order to you have to be a believer in order to truly worship god today and you, uh, and any day, you have to be a believer, but specifically today, a believer in Jesus Christ, and you must worship Him in truth, which is contained in His Word, John 17, 17, God's Word is truth. So we have to be believers, we have to be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit through confessing our, our sins to Him, first step, believing in Him, of course. And then we can come before him and worship him, recognizing who, uh, who he is in his, in his essence, recognizing who he is compared to us. That's what worship really is all about. And that's what these angels are doing, a good, a good testament to us about what worship ought to be. They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They are giving glory and honor and thanks to Him. Again, recognizing Him for who He is uh, in one of the great doxologies of the Bible or statements of praise Paul says in first Timothy one seventeen now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, recognizing God for who he is. this is not this is the exact opposite in fact of what the people described in Romans chapter one are like Romans one and verse 20, after describing their uh, immoral, ungodly sin, he says, Romans one twenty: For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not... Honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. so these angels are recognizing God for who He is, and they are worshipping him. That is a good thing for us to do in our lives also to not be like those in romans one twenty who don't recognize God for who He is. They don't give thanks to Him for what He's done for us. And then they are led down the path to indescribable sin. It's important for us to understand that Satan himself is an angel. And he did not do what these uh, angels are doing here, these four living creatures. He became uh, futile, in his speculations, wanting to replace God, become like God, Isaiah chapter fourteen seems to indicate speaking of Satan seems to indicate that he played some sort of role in heaven before he fell in the worship of god interesting uh, so worship leaders you got to be careful with <laughs> with these. People. He became haughty and proud, wanted to remove God from his place, wanted to, in fact, be like God. He's not humble like these creatures are humble, covering their faces and their, and their feet. Instead, he was lifted up in his, own, in his own thinking. And as we're going to see, this is not something that God uh, really appreciates. Notice that it says that they do not cease to say holy 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 is the Lord God. That's not a, that's not an indication that that's all they do. The only thing they do is is stand there and say holy 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 is the Lord God. It means that this is something uh, that they are uh, good way to describe it something that they are doing on a regular basis. Kind of like when I was a kid uh, we didn't cease to go to church. We were in church every single Sunday. Uh, that church was open, we were there. We didn't cease to go. It doesn't mean that was the only thing that we did, but over time, we were continually going to church. Uh, same idea that Paul is trying to get about, get across when he tells the Thessalonians, Thessalonians to pray without ceasing doesn't mean you sit in your house and you have your eyes closed and your head bowed and you only pray. It's the only thing you do. It is uh, a way of saying, be a person of prayer. When things happen in your life, pray. Uh, When you uh, need to go before the Lord, pray. Be a person who prays. That's what these angels are. These angels are angels that worship God. And then next, notice uh the elders are described again there in verse 10, after we see that the that the angels uh or verse nine, and when the when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, verse ten. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Again, these elders... uh, are humbling themselves before God. Verse 10, the 24 elders, again, representative of the church, will fall down before Him who sits on the throne. They are humbling themselves before God. Now, I, I don't know how much time you spend on uh, YouTube watching the quote-unquote popular Bible teachers, but there is a trend uh, among them it's probably it's probably uh, so 2021 I'm not sure if they're doing it in 2022 so much anymore but there was a trend among them to kneel down uh, during their sermons and this kind of thing you know we've got this wire attached it wouldn't work too good for us to to be doing that up here but but it's all for show it is a a I guess I shouldn't judge their hearts, but it certainly seems as if it is it is a show of of humility because they didn't do it before and they're probably not doing it now, so why were you doing it then? It's just a, a trend. That is not what these twenty four these twenty four elders are not a just a fad or a trend. They are humbling themselves before God. Because after all, pride is something that the Lord hates. Proverbs 6.17 Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood are just a few of the things that God hates. Psalm 138.6 For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Uh, James Chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, in a message to believers in the book of James, of course. He says to them, but uh, speaking of God, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. And that's exactly what the church here in this scene in heaven is doing. Humbling themselves before the Lord and recognizing Him for who He is. Uh the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. And then notice their statement of praise. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. This the eternality of God is emphasized in both of these uh worship statements, those of the angels, those uh of the church. He create he in order to create all things, he had to exist before all things were created. That's uh that's pretty obvious. And uh notice also that they are giving their rewards back before they make the statement of praise. It says that they cast their crowns before the throne. Last time we saw how the Bible describes these various crowns that can be uh, given to believers. We believe at the judgment seat of Christ and we're not uh, going throughout eternity with them on, on our heads, showing off to our friends. Instead, we're giving them right back to the Lord uh, because after all, he is the one who deserves them. He is the one that we are doing this for. He is the one that we are worshiping because he is God. He's the Creator. The church recognizes him for. We we ought to be very careful in our uh, understanding of Genesis chapters one and two. You created all things, seen and unseen. Uh, God did. He is worthy of worship because He did that. He spoke everything into existence. Ex nihilo, it's called. From nothing. He created everything uh, that is. And of course, He is very much worthy of worship because of that. And of course, He's also sovereign. Because of your will, they existed and were created. And this is... The God that we worship. This is the God who came into the world to die for our sins. He is the, the, the same one who created all things. The same one who is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father in the midst of these four living beings. If we somehow were called to heaven like John was, that's the scene that we would see. Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father in the midst of this sea of glass or, and crystal and flashing, uh, signs of a storm, coming judgment, because after all, Jesus Christ is standing right at the door, uh, ready to execute this judgment that we're about to get to. And this is the thing that that John is describing to us in this incredible, uh, nearly indescribable scene in heaven. He's been raptured to heaven to see what's going to take place in the future. He sees God on his throne. Judgment is impending. He's separated from all that's around him by this sea of glass, surrounded by these incredible uh, angelic, Beings who are praising Him, ready to do His will, created perfectly in order to accomplish His will and His bidding. And the church is there also in this scene. Subsequent to the rapture, this this will be you and me worshiping God. Not that that's the only thing that we will do, but we will be people of worship people who are continuously uh, recognizing God for who He is, the one who is whos is, uh, the one that we honor, the one that we give glory and honor and uh, because of His incredible power and in His creation of all things, His sovereignty over all things. The fact that He, uh, before the creation of the world. He devised this plan to save us from ourselves, essentially. And this is the one that John sees and that he uh, will worship and that we worship also. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us in the book of Revelation. We thank you for this incredible vision that John uh, saw and that he is able to relate to us. And I just pray, Lord, that the truth of your word, who you are, and what you have done for us in the past and what you will do for us in the future, motivates us to be people who are ready to serve you, like these angels that we saw. Obviously, they are created for the very purpose of serving you, given, and they're given every attribute and every. Thing that they need comes from you in order to serve you. And we are no different, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers, empowers us to do every single thing that you want us to do. You have uh, made possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, the convicting and nature of your word. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be people who recognize you for who you are and are ready to serve you with our lives. We pray uh, and we give you all of the glory ahead of time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.